This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, oh boy, do I have an extra special guest, Michael Lewis, author of such books as The Big Short, Liar's Poker, Blindside, Flash Boys, Moneyball, it just goes on and on. The Undoing Project is here to talk about his new book, his latest book, which is out this week called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. And man, let me tell you, I plowed through this book in two days. It's just astonishing. This is the money ball for epidemiology, the big short for how to screw up a pandemic response. It's all of your favorite Michael Lewis characters, the brilliant but quirky outsider, the people who are not quite dead center of the institution but are aware the institution is collapsing. And it's just a fascinating tale. If I haven't lived through this for the past year, I would have read this and said, this couldn't happen. This is impossible. But having lived through it, it's like, oh, my God, I remember that. How did, That's how that happened? Holy cow. The whole thing is just astonishing. Every time Michael Lewis releases a new book, it's an event, and this one is no different. So with that, I will just shut up and say my conversation with Michael Lewis. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Michael Lewis. He is our returning champion and I think this is our third or fourth in- interview. His latest book is Premonition, a pandemic story. Think of it as the Moneyball version of epidemiology, and it's absolutely fascinating. You know Michael Lewis's work, everything from Liar's Poker to Moneyball to The Big Short to The Undoing Project. This is very much along the same lines, and I think you will really enjoy it. Let's jump right into this. And I have to start, Michael, by asking, you wrote a series of dispatches from America in the age of COVID-19. When did you recognize that, hey, you know, this is a book here? Yeah, you know, the the dispatches were already in the services of the book. Uh, mm-hmm. That I was, um, a couple of things happened. One was I'd written the, the previous book, The Fifth Risk, which is just kind of an argument that we're, we're all in trouble if if the if the administration isn't all that interested in managing the federal government because the federal federal government manages this portfolio of risks, many of them existential risks, including the risks of a pandemic, and um, and that book sort of posed the question like, what happens if something really bad happens, um, and. Uh, and so I was sort of, in a way, poised for this. It was like, what is the bad thing going to be? And it was this. Um, the, the other thing that happened very early on in the pandemic, um, like March, um, late March, is I stumbled into um, characters who clearly were book characters, and that, they had, that they had the dimensions, the breadth uh, of 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 the best book characters I've had. And so, and the, in particular, um, there were, you know, it it sounds preposterous, but I can't think of another way to put it. A kind of secret group of doctors who were, you know, who had, some had worked in the White House, actually most had worked in the White House. They were placed all over kind of the, the institutions that might have something to do with pandemic response, who had been, 
who had been kind of together for about 15 years, who were kind of sh- trying to shadow manage the pandemic. And one of those characters was so interesting to me. I thought, man, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but but he he's a book. He, Carter Mesher was his name, and you know he we can get into him, but he basically invented the idea of pandemic response, and um, and so so. Uh, so I wrote some things for Bloomberg, which were on the side of of the book, and it was a way to get me around and out and reporting in the field and giving me a, a you know license to go ask people questions. But the book was there first, and it 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 took shape differently than they usually do. You, you know, your question's good because normally what happens, right, is I find a bunch of magazine <laughs> stuff and it just builds and builds and builds, and all right. of a sudden I've got a book. But in this case, what I had was not the stu- that stuff. I had characters, and I just thought, I'm going to follow these people wherever they go. And there are at least three characters, if not more, in the book that each of them could be a main character in a book. We'll, we'll come back to them later. One of the things you write about, you, you do pick up where the fifth risk left off, and you write, hey, you know, for three years, despite all sorts of global threats and risks and potential crises, the Trump administration, it had gotten pretty lucky, and then suddenly their luck ran out. Tell us about that. Well, um, there wasn't anything that big to manage, and there wasn't there, the inst- they didn't need the, to really be able to understand and wield the instruments of the federal government in the way they would have to in a pandemic. But, but you, know, I, you know, what was ironic about this was, Though I think probably going in, I thought my book would have a lot to do with the Trump administration because I at least used the Trump administration's transition indifference way back when as as a hook to explain what these instruments were inside the federal government and how important they were. I think I would have I thought in the beginning that Trump and the administration were going to be really important in this story. And I was surprised that they, they kind of, as you, you read it, they kind of fade into the background of the right. problems. Trump ends up, as one of the, as one of the characters said, is a comorbidity. He's like right. another right. thing you died of. But it, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the thing that really killed you. Uh, it was that we had we, – our, our problematic response to, to a pandemic was baked into our, our system. It, and it predated it, the Trump administration – not that they made it any better, but there were problems leading right up to 2017. Oh yeah, you that that I, I think at least two of my three main characters would have predicted this was going to be a total mess um, well before Trump because of their interaction, because of their knowledge of the public health system, which isn't a system at all. It's, you know, it's several thousand local public health officers not really stitched together with, 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 um, with plenty of legal authority, but not a lot of social power. And, huh. and on top of it, an institution, the CDC, that has steadily become less capable at kind of battlefield command. Oh, and we're so, going to come back to the CDC because they are a major character in this and, and a major failure before we leave sort of the setup, I have to ask you, George Bush, George W. Bush is kind of an unlikely hero in the book. After 9-11, he reads about, reads a book about the 1918 pandemic, 
and immediately recognizes, I guess, a parallel to terrorism and says, hey, we need an early warning system for predicting emerging pathogens. Tell us a little bit about what Bush did. Well, you have to, you have to kind of rewind the tape and imagine the state of mind George Bush is in when he picks up John Barry's The Great Influenza, which is the, the book about the 1918 pandemic. He's, he's not only has he pre, been presided over 9-11, he, that Katrina's just happened. Um, and he's got, you know, it's sort of like, what's the next bad thing? And he reads about exactly how bad it could be if, if a new pathogen rips through the population, and he asks somebody, what's the plan? And the somebody says, there isn't one. <laughs> there, there's, there's some narrow things, but not really a pandemic plan. And Bush um, turns, to, you, know, you know, there are a few people in the room when the conversations are, having, are being had, but there's a fairly young um, doctor who has turned, who's, who's become more interested in public policy, named Rajiv Venkaya. It's kind of a great story, actually. So Rajiv is like the young guy in the room. And at the end of a a meeting where Bush is furious that the the nation doesn't have a plan for a pandemic, everybody kind of turns to Rajiv and says, go go write it. And and he kind of, you know, picked people's brains for a week and tried to figure out what he – and he ended up going back to his parents' home in Xenia, Ohio, locking himself in a basement for – uh, two days, and, and writing essentially a plan for a plan, and comes back and says, what we need to do is bring in um, people from seven or eight federal agencies who would be involved in responding uh, and preparing for a pandemic, and think about what the plan should look like. And that's mm. the beginning of the creation of the plan. So he's, so two well, one of the the main characters, well, kind of two of the main characters, the kind of four main characters, uh, <laughs> get pulled into that effort, and that's the beginning. And it's sort of like they're told, and they're t- they're told to do lots of things, like figure out how to streamline, make our vaccine uh, production capacities m- more robust, and 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 figure out how to, you know, I don't know. Um, Prevent, prevent disease from leaping from chickens into people. Uh, you know, that, that would be Department of Agriculture. They're, they're like lots and lots of little things they, they scheme about. But at the center of it is this question. And the question is, what do you do with people, with the population, before you have a vaccine? And that sounds like a question that you would have thought had been answered at that point. In fact, this is the thing that was just really interesting to them and to me, was that they received wisdom from the 1918 pandemic was that social interventions, they go by various names, non-pharmaceutical interventions, social distancing, whatever you want to call it, uh, the closing of schools and bars and churches and all that and keeping six feet apart, all that was deter- was this, was it was it was concluded that didn't work in 1918, and so the the elites in public health thought you don't do any of that. It just doesn't work, um, and so they they had a question on their hands. What, what do we do? We just sit around and wait until we figure out the vaccine and and hope not too many people die. Uh, that's the beginning of their uh, of really their investigation. I'm going to come back to the wrong takeaways from the 1918 pandemic in a little bit. I just have to ask you for a follow-up. 
So the Bush administration pandemic response, that's three administrations ago, almost 20 years ago. What happened with that group? Did they ever manage to get a plan together? And what did the most recent administration do with what they had created? It's the most remarkable story. Um, Not only do they get a plan together, um, they do. They, they perform extraordinary feats, uh, like going back and completely reinvestigating 1918 and determining that, oh, actually, the social distancing stuff did work. They just didn't right. understand how it worked because they didn't understand. For example, you know, um, Philadelphia had death rates that were multiples of the death rates of St. Louis. The, at the time, it, the the the, the wisdom, received wisdom was that was just kind of accidental. And, in fact, what it was was that social distancing policies were, were implemented in St. Louis earlier in relation to the arrival of the virus than they, they were in Philadelphia. And they go, so there's a, it's an incredible uh, kind of story of how they figure this stuff out, but they, they write a plan. And they write a plan without – now, this is a couple of critical components to this. One is – Rajiv Venkaya, the, the young doctor who's put in charge of sort of assembling the people to write the plan, leaves the CDC out of it. And he leaves the CDC out of it because already back then there is suspicion that the CDC is an entrenched kind of bureaucracy defending its own turf. And, and what's required here is some new kind of thinking, and they're very invested in the old kind of thinking, and you don't want them at the table, which tells you something, right? Really? We're at 2006, and people are already feeling this way about the CDC. And, and so after they, get, they create the plan, um, there is the, tr- the trick of selling the CDC and the entire public health community on the plan, which is in itself a story of it's a two-year story of you know 300 meetings and in the end um carter mesher one of my main characters who has you know all these people all my characters have these superpowers carter's superpower was invisibility <laughs> he had the ability to walk into the cdc which no one does and write a plan for them that they then took on as their own and they changed the headline that. and that's all they did was change the title of it and that was enough to give them ownership kind of slips in uh, and and writes this thing with and makes them feel like they're doing it and they're left with the impression this was the CDC's plan and this this is very important because the CDC at that moment is the world's great health organization public health organization and whatever its relationship to the American people is its relationship to the rest of the world is extremely powerful and it goes out in itself this plan uh, all over the world explains how for example social distancing works and how you would implement it and um, and the uh, and so the plan takes root in lots of places and it takes root in theory in the United States. But there's this thing. Your point is well taken. This is three administrations ago. Um, Carter Mesher, my character, who is in the Bush White House, is amazed when Bush leaves and Obama comes in, what happens in the federal government as a rule uh, when administrations change. They come into his office. They take all his computers, all his hard drives. They remove all of his papers. They take every piece of work he's done and just whisk it away. Where it goes, he never knows. 
And it's like the memory of the previous administration is erased. And all that's left is whatever human beings are around and what they have in their head. Now, he's the human being who's designated to, stick, to hold over from Bush to Obama. And he's only meant to stay there for about six months in case something happens kind of thing. And, um, and something happens, right? There's a faux pandemic. There's a, there is a right. pandemic, the swine flu pandemic of 2009. But as one of my characters puts it, it wasn't, it wasn't that, uh, that we dodged a bullet. It's that nature shot us with a BB gun. It was, a, right. it was, a lot of people got that virus. It just wasn't as lethal as initially right. feared. Got very, very lucky. To the point you just made, you describe the real tragedy about government waste is that one box, you describe the government as a series of boxes, little turfs where people have their own knowledge and talent and expertise, and they create a culture. And the big tragedy is that people in one box might have the solution to a problem that's one or two boxes over, but they never meet, there's no interaction. None of the knowledge, none of the human wisdom gets to spread throughout the government. So my story, that's true. And my story partly dramatizes what happens if you break down those boxes a little bit, because Rajiv Venkaya did. He brought these people together, right. hauled this doctor you know, out of obscurity from the Veterans Administration, who proved to be a savant in pandemics, who never would have been found. But, but once the, the, thing, the, the thing is so shocking is that we create, we invent, thanks to George W. Bush, we invent pandemic planning. Uh, we we invent we create the plan that is sort of becomes the playbook for most of the world, right. and we ourselves start to forget why, and we, we and forget what it is and forget its importance and forget the arguments that let everybody to agree this is what you do, and the the Obama administration sort of has to. F- learn it all over again, and they are lucky, well, and smart, because they kept Carter around, and Carter kind of teaches them stuff, and they, one of the central lessons uh, that they all had kind of internalized was that you need, if you're going to face a pandemic, you have to do it from the White House, that you can't, you can't just leave it to the CDC. There are a whole bunch of agencies involved. The, CD, the CDC will have its own skewed take on things. You use the CDC, but you, you run it. The battlefield command is out of the White House. And um, the Obama administration has to kind of learn that all over again. Uh, and Carter sort of is part of the reason they, they learn it. But, but the bigger point is the way the way our government does create things and throws, throws enormous resources into creating them and then does not preserve what's created in the way you would wish it would. Um, and it, because there is this very strange notion of a new administration being, having a clean slate or being a clean slate. Now, smart presidents... And, you know, Obama was a smart president, he leaned very heavily on Bush and tried to keep people around. And he had a bunch of crises he was dealing with at the time, if you remember. But so there were reasons to keep people around. He wasn't hostile to learning from the outgoing. But the outgoing is still the outgoing to too great a degree. Um, you know, 4,000-something people who were president, presidential appointees flee the place. Uh, when the new administration comes in, and those people were running the place. Now, what, what kind of 
company like could function if every four years you whacked off the heads of all the managers mm-hmm. and said, oh, we're going to bring in some new ones. And, 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 and the new ones, they have a choice. They can either kind of have a conversation with the old ones or they can just go make it up all over again. But that's basically how we run our government. Huh. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about why people have such a hard time getting their minds around a pandemic, including some of the worst tragedies in American history. Why is the human brain so bad at comprehending the way contagion spread? We can intuit arithmetic growth, but our intuition fails when we try and comprehend exponential growth. Why is that? It is an observation that's a really important observation, and it's the observation that is it, it, one of the observations that the, is at the center of the story and at the, at the core of the thinking of the main characters. They all realize that when you are facing a, a, a pandemic, a virus that's spreading, you've got this, this invisible enemy that's, that's, that's growing exponentially, and before you have signs of it in the form of illness and then death, to, to be able to kind of take its measure, it has, it has progressed greatly. And, and you're, you'll be, if you think you're looking at an arithmetic process, you'll be overwhelmed before you respond. And the, this is why, partly the reason for the title of the book, they, they all realize that in the beginning of a pandemic that you have to you've got to imagine that you've got to look around corners. You've got to, you've got to kind of, you, you've got to see the thing before it can be seen. And Carter, Mesher, I mean, they, they, they're always groping for, for metaphors or analogies to try to get people to understand how hard it is to deal with a, with a, with a, a pandemic virus. And, and fire was Carter's favorite. And, the, the, the story he loved was the story of, that Norman McLean told in his book Young Men in Fire of, of the Man Gulch Fire, where you have, you have you know, a dozen or so very healthy young men walking down a gulch, and they see what looks they, – they, 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 they see a fire coming at them, and they start to run away. Um, and, like, you know, a minute later, they're all – incinerated and to the point where some of them didn't even bother to drop their packs and their axes and that they were kind of judging the movement of the fire by how it was moving when they first saw it but by the time it gets them it's moving two or three times faster it's because it's it, it, the fire move, grows exponentially and a virus is like that um and and it's so why is it that we don't we we have trouble with exponential processes um I don't know, when we were in the savannah, how often did we see it? You know, it's, it's like one of those things that, you know, it exists. We, we, we encounter it every now and then. But why is it people have trouble with compound interest? Right. You know, well, it's the same sort of thing, right? Right. Uh, people give themselves all kinds of crosswise with compound interest because they don't understand the power of it. Um, we don't but, see it often enough for it to have an evolutionary impact on who passes along that gene or not, yeah, it, it's so something rare. something like that. Now, yeah. maybe that's changing, but, uh, but, it's, but yes. And it, it creates a big problem for people who are trying to save the society because, because the, we have the, 
the mechanisms of government are so slow grinding and nobody wants to the the, the phrase that dro- drove my characters crazy was don't get ahead of the data <laughs> uh, so like we're going to wait for the data by the time you have the data you're dead right uh, by the, by the t- by the time you know that there are you know you know, uh, there, there, the virus is spreading internally in the United States, and there's one death. You know that you can go back and say, well, that one death is a result of an infection that, caused, that, that occurred a month ago, and the virus is exp- spreading at such and such a rate. So you probably have like a thousand cases a month, a month ago that are multiplying exponentially. You've already lost your ability to contain it. Um, so you've got to you've got to jump out in front of of that. You've got to you've got to act before you have visible evidence uh, to act on. You use the metaphor that deaths and hospitalizations in a pandemic is like starlight. You're looking at something that starlight could be four or hundreds or millions of years old by the time you see it. If you wait for that data, you're already way too late. In fact. The current data is already lagging and a few weeks behind. Correct. And, or, or it's like driving just by looking in the rearview mirror. I mean, that, it has, that there is there, – but the bigger point is, what, is it, what problem does this create for any authority that's trying to manage the problem? You, the, and it, it's a big problem in a society that doesn't trust the authority because – the authority is going to be saying things for which there's no visible evidence. They're going to be saying, you've got to trust me, but if we act now, we'll cut it off and be able to contain it. Uh, but we're going to have to do some things before you even see, before you see the fire coming at you. We see smoke. We know that we, we are inferring, because we have expertise in the subject, that that smoke suggests this fire is going to be all over us in, you know, two weeks. But if we go and throw water on the smoke right now at some expense, uh, we may never see the fire. And, but it, but who, who does, in what society does that work? It works in a society where that person, that authority who's speaking, is, is widely trusted. And um, that was one of our problems. You, speaking of widely trusted, you, you hardly reference Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Health, who I believe is one of the most widely trusted people in America. How do you tell the whole pandemic story and not bring in Fauci very much? He really wasn't a key part of this story, was he? He wasn't a key part of my story. I have great admiration for him, but it's, um, how do I put this? I I think Fauci learned a lot from my characters um, rather than the reverse. So Carter Mesher, uh, the VA doctor, who is at the at the heart of the invention of pan, of the pandemic plan, um, in early January, is writing emails to his small group of doctors, and it, and the, the emails end up attracting a huge following um, about what's going on in Wuhan, and Carter Mesher in on January twentieth. Has said this is this is a you know five alarm fire that this mm-hmm. is just this is beyond this is beyond shocking and this is what's going to happen and he was just about dead right and at that point Fauci was saying there wasn't anything to worry about um, it, it was they were watching it but it wasn't and Carter saying at this point this is when you can't be just watching it right. and um, 
So I, I, I think that that the, the the expertise of responding to the pandemic was located in more in my characters than in Anthony Fauci. He was really good at public communication. Right. He's, a, I'm sure, great at what he does. But my guys invented this, <laughs> and uh, and and go, go, go to go one step further. It wasn't just my guys. The main character of the book's a woman, and one a very peculiar dimension to this whole whole U.S. pandemic was that on-the-ground battlefield disease commanders, pub, local public health officers who had spent their careers fighting, fighting um, communicable disease, other communicable diseases, whether it's TB or hepatitis C or measles or whatever it is, some of them quite lethal, um, were, were, were not front and center in the pandemic response. That they, they understood like how you, the hand-to-hand combat side of this, right. and in ways that even Anthony Fauci wouldn't, because he had never done that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you, one way, you know, it's funny, your audience may appreciate this analogy, but when I was thinking about what, this, what other book of mine this is kind of like, you mentioned Moneyball, but I, I thought the Big, the big Short. short yeah, because, absolutely. And it's The Big Short because you've got... This a system problem, and the system's gotten so screwed up that the people who are at the heart of the system, or who seem to be running the system, don't understand the system as well as people who are seem to be kind of on the fringes of the system. In this case, the people on the fringes of pandemic response, or seem to be, were the ones who actually knew what to do, and uh, and who were able to kind of diagnose the problems of the system, and. Our problem was kind of the wrong people were at the center of it. So I thought to myself, as I thought with the big short, I don't want to really read a book or write a book about the people at the heart of the system who didn't understand the system. Um, I want to write a book about the people who actually did understand the system wherever they happened to be. And I want to kind of assemble a cast of characters who actually knew what was going on and can describe it to the reader. And that took me, you know, outside the Trump administration, outside to some extent the federal government. I mean, Carter Mesher's in the federal government, but he's, you know, he's basically, he's, he's, he's working out of his house for the VA and the VA doesn't even know they employ him. Um, It's, it was very strange and disturbing where the expertise was in the story, just like it was very strange and disturbing where the expertise was in the financial crisis, so, in, the, in, the, in, in, the, in the subprime mortgage crisis. So I'm glad you brought up the big short. You're forcing me to jump ahead to a question that I have to ask, and it's what's the archetype Michael Lewis book? And with all due respect to your friend Malcolm Gladwell, I don't find biblical analogies work. <laughs> Um, and you know what I'm referencing. But here's how I see your archetype. And it's there's a big, important institution that at one point was a, a key preventer of existential disaster. And over time, it begins to calcify and starts to fail slowly, sometimes years, sometimes decades. The entrenched powers fail to see it. They can't see the forest for the trees. And there's always this scrappy band of outsiders. They are always intelligent, 
often quirky, sometimes misfits. They see it early. They warn about it, sometimes to various effects. Sometimes the warnings are ignored. Fortunes are made and lost. Lives are lost. Catastrophes either averted or not. That's my archetype Michael Lewis book, fair or not. Well, it doesn't. It, you ca- you describe a few of the books with that. You miss the Undoing Project. You miss. True. You you capture Flash Boys. You capture the Big Short. Right. Uh, you Moneyball. Capture. You don't really capture Liars Poker. No. Nope. Um, Moneyball. I don't know. Is I, I guess you could argue. Yeah. that Baseball was a sclerotic enterprise, and right. It's, it's, well, look how look how Moneyball changed baseball. It changed basketball. It's changed all sorts of sports. And I would even argue with you, the author, as much as I'm loath to do that, that the Undoing Project are about two outsiders from the world of finance and economics who essentially turn the whole concept oh, right. of incentives Sorry, on its right. head. That's a very fair way to look at it. So it's true. It, it is true that. Um, I'm attracted to that story. Yeah, um, and you and, tell it better than anybody else does. But but the world has sort of handed me those stories too. <laughs> I mean, I think we're having we be, we're living in it through a time where, you know, to put it very broadly, the character of the entrepreneur is extremely important. The entrepreneur, very mm-hmm. broadly defined, the person who is coming in and undertaking something new from outside that's going to turn. It's going to turn the system on its head, or that expose the flaws or weaknesses in the system. So um, there's a fluidity to, especially American life, and and this is this is another example of that. It, it's it's, it, but when it comes when it, when you find it at the level of the federal government, which is the an extremely important institution. Whatever you think about it, you've got to, got to stop and go learn about it if, 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 if you don't understand its importance. That, that if it doesn't do the things that, that no, nothing else is going to do well, if it doesn't keep us safe in the ways it's uniquely designed to keep us safe, we are doomed. Um, and so when you find the sclerosis that, um, that enables uh, the characters that I'm drawn to, to 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 play a role, to to see to identify the problems, to try to fix the problems, to attack it from the outside, um, that, that it's it's troubling. And in this case, it's what's so peculiar is that um, unlike the Big Short, where the main characters were all people who were pretty fringy their whole careers until. The financial crisis. I mean, yeah, they had little hedge funds and so on and so forth. But they were not running Goldman Sachs, um, or they weren't running the biggest hedge fund. And the, these people were were people who were on the inside in some ways. I mean, they they, they could completely see. It was it's as if it, it's it's as if um, I don't know. Uh, Outer ring uh, of the bullseye. They weren't dead center. They were in one of the exactly third. That's exactly right. And, and, and they would have said to you, like Charity Neen would have said to you, local public health officer in Santa Barbara County who becomes number two in the state of California and who has the, the single most vivid on-the-ground view of what is going on with communicable disease in the country. It's her little slice of the country, but you can just replicate it thousands of times. Um, that, that she would say that from the moment she started that job back in whatever, 2011, um, that she had a better view than the CDC of what was going on. 
and it shocked her. Uh, she thought the CDC sort of ran things, and she comes to learn that they don't really run things. And that, uh, you know, a year or two years in, she realizes, hell, no one's coming to save me. I am on my own. I am on my own if there's an Ebola outbreak in Santa Barbara County. Um, that it's, it's, um, so they are, um, they are, they're not coming from that far away, the main, these main characters. Huh. Quite interesting observations. So one of your main characters, Carter Meacham, says, quote, I could not design a system better for transmitting disease than our school system. And you go on to describe the desks, the buses. Uh, what makes schools such a vector for transmission of airborne disease? Now, you got to just stop and realize how cool this is. This guy is in the White House. He's been told to write a pandemic plan. He has done that. And unsatisfied with the degree to which it's going to save the American people, he, one, goes back and figures out that, social distancing, closing things, and all the rest had huge effects back in 1918. For the first time in history, he, he, he does this kind of historical work. And he's a doctor. He's not a historian. And he does it with his colleague, Richard Hatchett. But, but, and then second, they get, they get these very crude models, and that's a whole other story where the models come from. And they see in, in, sim, in simulations, in these models of disease transmission, something really peculiar happens when you close schools. And he does, he, he, you know, they don't know whether to believe the models. The models are, you know, abstractions from reality. It seems like a really smart abstraction from reality they're working with, but no one's really ever paid much attention to models for disease transmission. So they're a little, they're a little skeptical. And he, Carter asks, like, what is it about schools? And that this guy who's in the White House, you know, calls his wife and says, we're going to school. I want next time they give us an opportunity to go to one of the kids' schools, I want to go with a tape measure and start looking at how these kids interact. And he, and he starts to measure the physical space between children and, and, um, and also observe very closely how kids interact with each other and how they don't observe um, space. They don't kind of give each other space in the way adults do, on the bus stops, in the classroom, in the hallways. Oh, and it's, as he says, he says, you know, why, why are people missing just how, how sort of built for transmitting a communicable disease a school is uh, in their thinking about what we do if there is one? And he says it's because people forget what it was like to be a kid. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's, 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 they designed the buses so the seats are 39 inches across because they assume the hip, hip width of the child is 13 inches and they can put three on a seat. I mean, he does all this research. And um, it's, so, so the, he realizes that the closing of schools has to be an important aspect of any kind of response to, well, they're, they're dealing with pandemic flu, which is much more lethal in children. So, uh, but, but even COVID, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's, I think he would say one of the unexplored subjects in COVID is the role kids have played because they are, they can, they can get it, they can transmit it, but they don't get sick and they often don't even have symptoms. So that it's, you know, you can point to a lot of anecdotal evidence where the start of an outbreak was quite likely a school, and you just didn't see it at the school. You didn't see it until the kid interacted with some older person. Uh, but, 
but it's the, the, the just the idea that he is wandering around schools with tape measures and, right. and, and figuring out why this, this model that was built to analyze disease transmission is saying what it's saying. Um, and that they, they then embed in, in the CDC's plan, like the minute it looks like this is a big deal, you've you got to close the schools first. And then that, you know, if you, if you go see what happened in this pandemic, go to, I don't know, pick a country, Cambodia, a country that contained the virus. Um, but there are a bunch of countries that contained the virus. What's the first thing they did? They closed the schools. Huh. It's, it, all tra- it goes back to Carter Mesher and his tape measure in an Atlanta public school, figuring out how kids interacted and how close they were to each so, other. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the group of seven male doctors led by Carter Metrum that put together the pandemic plan originally for George W. Bush, they're holding, as as we go through 2020, they're holding these, for lack of a better word, conference phone calls and Zoom calls, and more and more people start listening in from various aspects of government. This is, they're unofficially doing this. They're not, you know, the Trump White House didn't say, go do this, and that sort of spreads from county to county, state to state. Eventually, the White House is listening in on it. How influential is Carter Meacham and his band of merry doctors that are setting policy because nobody else was? It was a giant vacuum. So it was only two of the seven from the Bush White House team that Mm -hmm. ended up becoming so obsessed that they became sort of the pandemic guys, Richard Hatchett and Carter Mesher. And those two are the hub of a group of doctors in there. These doctors are are in unusual positions. Matt Hepburn is the head of vaccine development for Operation Warp Speed. Um, uh, James Lawler runs a um, an infectious disease unit of the federal government that's in Omaha, where you're, you know, you're likely to be sent if you get, if you have blood coming out of your eyes and no one knows why. That, that it's like for highly, for, for really, really alarming cases of disease to treat and understand. So he's on the front lines there. Um, Dave Marcosi, another doctor, is in, ends up being essentially av- advising the, the governor of Maryland. Uh, Rajiv Venkaya, who was the doctor who assembled the original pandemic planning team in the Bush administration, who's now head of a big pharmaceutical, works at a big pharmaceutical in, in Japan, um, has social connections with the governor of Ohio. And so what happens is you can, you can sort of map the U.S. Because the Trump administration basically said you're on your own to the governors, um, you're going to do yeah, – and we, we had 50 different you know, pandemic responses, which, of course, is never going to work because right. unless you close the borders between states. Right. Um, the, the, you can map the, the urgency with which a state responded onto the – Onto the interactions that these doctors had with particular people in the states. So, which so states got it right? Close... Which ones got it wrong? Well, the in the beginning, so it changed over time. But mm-hmm. in the beginning, the ones who who jumped to as they should have were Maryland, Ohio, and California, and uh, and it was it was entirely a result of them kind of listening to what these are largely a result of listening to what these guys had to say about what was about to happen. Now, th- now, 
there is there the, the email chains. They had a group. They called themselves the Wolverines, the Doctors, and it's kind. Of, didn't it was kind of a joke. But the, their email chain was called the Red Dawn chain, and the and the Red Dawn chain. All kinds of people ended up on this thing, and it's a little hard to to see. I mean, like in the Trump administration, what effect it had because you had um, I don't know Ken Cuccinelli who was a uh, deputy homeland I don't know what exactly his title was I think he was number two at Homeland Security who is you know on conference calls with these guys just listening in and um, the you know indirectly because of this Charity Dean uh, the lead character of the book the the public health officer who is number two in California who's being at the time ignored by Gavin Newsom has a plan solicited from her from that goes to Jared Kushner. And she never finds out what actually happens with this plan. They don't actually enact it, but, but you, you, the, uh, these guys were the ones who were sounding alarm bells, and, the, and people were listening to it to the extent they were listening. The problem was the incoherence, right? That, that, just to show you how accidental our response was, when Trump came into office, his head of Homeland Security was a guy named Tom Bossert. And Bossert was a bit of an odd character in that he had been in the Bush administration. And for Trump, mostly the Bush people and the Obama people were off limits because they'd all been rude about him. And he, didn't, and he, he wanted just loyalists. But Bossert somehow r- stuck. And, and among the first things Tom Bossert did back when Trump entered the White House, was get in touch with Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett, the two guys who had cooked up the pandemic response plan, and said, if we ever have a pandemic, you guys are here. And I'd almost like to badge you in now so we don't have to worry about that when it happens. And um, flash forward two years, and John Bolton comes into the White House to, uh, to run to be head of national security. And he, the first, about the first thing he does is fire Tom Bossert. And at that moment, the, the link between the Trump White House and the expertise that could have saved us is severed. And, and so the expertise is just kind of rattling around the United States, not organized in any way, not accessed by the government. But it might have been. And if you talk to Bossert, he says, you know, this is as accidental as if, if Bolton had not been brought in and I was still there. He says, I think, he really believes, I think I could have persuaded Trump to do the things these guys were saying to do, to be very yeah. draconian up front. Because he would, and he would, I would have said to him that you just fire me if it doesn't work. Blame it all on me, but you get right. all the credit and if it does work. And give it, give it six weeks, two months, and all of a sudden we will be a model in how uh, in the world of how to respond to this thing, and everybody will be singing your praises. And think about that. Think about that decision. You know, fair chance that if that if Bossert's right and that had happened, Trump would be president now. Right. Uh, right. You know, and, and if, less if, than five hundred fifty thousand Americans would be dead. And plus, you get plus Trump would be president. Plus, you have hundreds of thousands of Americans alive who would, who are not alive. Uh, it, it, but that we are that we are at the mercy of such serendipitous events is terrifying. I mean, it, it just speaks to a badly organized society. And, it's, and the, thing that, you know, the thing that attracted me to this book so much, the story, my main characters are just, they're superheroes. 
You read it. They're unbelievable right. characters. They're yeah, unbelievable. no, they're each one more fascinating than the next. And you want to hang with these guys. These, these are not people who, who, who you would have a hard time figuring out, have something special about them, right. and, and are incredibly useful. And the fact that our society is so disorganized, you can't put them in the place they need to be, that I have to come along and write a book <laughs> to put them in the place they need to be, um, that's the problem. So, Michael, I want to discuss the failures of the CDC and the WHO, but first I have to ask you about brain-eating amoebas, and to get there, we have to talk about Joe DeRisi and the Biohub. How did you go from hearing about DeRisi to writing about him? He's my other main character, and he was, it was a funny thing, Um, way back when Flash Boys came out, for five years ago, I had a dinner, and the purpose of the dinner was to introduce me to a a money manager out here in California named Carl Kawaja, and Carl, because Carl came with his conviction that I needed to meet this guy at UCSF, this biochemist named Joe DeRisi. He said he's a, he's like a character out of one of your books. And people say this to me every now and then. I'm right. usually like, try, try to be polite, but, <laughs> but no, I'm not really believing you. And he was so insistent that I said, Christ, all right, I'll go have a sandwich with him. And I went over, and at the time, he was just moving partly out of his office at UCSF to run this really weird institution called the – Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. It's, it's Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg's money, um, hundreds of millions of dollars, gone to create this institution whose purpose, stated purpose, is to eliminate disease by the end of the 21st century, which is, seems preposterous. Right. But Priscilla Chan had watched this guy, Joe DeRisi, lecture back when she was a medical student, and she said, I know a guy who might actually be able to do this. And Derisi is um, what's, what's so comp- – and it was true. When I met him and had a sandwich with him, I thought, oh, my God, I, 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 he's like the most interesting man on the planet. He does have – he was, he was able to convey science to a moron like me, and he was able to show me the stakes. And he was at the time setting, starting to set up a system of essentially trip wires around the world right. uh, where um, using genomic technology. So let me just simplify this. So if, you're in, if a, um, a child walks into a, a medical clinic in Cambodia with a fever, and some odd symptoms. You don't just like treat it like flu. You run it through one of Joe DeRisi's gene machines, and you see and you sequence you sequence whatever the thing is that's infecting the child, and you see if it's something new that has never infected people before. That you do that in a lot of places around the planet, and you all of a sudden have kind of an early warning system for new pathogens. That, that was what he, one, of the th- one of the things he wanted to do. And he was interested in this because he was one of the early kind of creators of the machinery, of the, of the genomic machinery, the technology to it, – it's kind of mind-blowing technology. It is. It, it really if is. Get, if you get sick and nobody knows what it is, 
Um, Joe, Joe was among the first to say, oh, look, hand me his DNA. Just get right. me something out of his body. I, I, my machine will eliminate all the stuff that's human in his body. I, I will know all the stuff that's supposed to be there. And then we'll analyze all the stuff in there that shouldn't be there and try to match it against the database of every known pathogen, of the, of the genomes of every known pathogen that we have, and there are thousands of them. And... Um, including brain-eating amoebas. But by and, the way, they, the hospital where the poor guy died from the brain-eating amoeba spent over a million dollars trying to cure him. Tell us what stops brain-eating amoebas. <laughs> I have to go back in my book to get the name of the, of the chemical. Penicillin. Was it penicillin? It was no, penicillin. No, 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 no. Penicillin was the boy. And he saved the boy. Uh, the, the poor Chinese woman who had Balamuthia, um, it was. It was. Um, it was. There was something else that. Uh, Are you sure? But, I just read this last night. You wrote all right, it months you ago. Be, so, so, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I will go back and look. But I'm scrolling right up. now and not seeing it. But, but um, the bigger point. The, yeah. The big. The bigger point is. Oh, I could be wrong. Oh, I, I read woman. it so quickly. Yes, a Chinese woman is 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 being studied for the better part of a month and a half as her brain is vanishing, and they can't figure out what's going on in her brain. They can't even see that it's a braining amoeba. They don't know what it is. Right. They think it's her immune system that's, that's overreacting to something, but they don't know what the something is. And the cla- it gets classified, as many situations do, as unidentified encephalitis. It's just a description. It's not a diagnosis. They don't know. And someone happens to know Joe DeRisi, one of the doctors. They, he says, give me, just give me like a sample out of her and let me see what it is. And he identifies uh, Balamuthia. Balamuthia is a brain eating amoeba. First, I think, identified in a mandrel uh, in the San Diego Zoo back in the 1980s. And it's, it's sufficiently rare that it just doesn't, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have no interest in, in, in figuring out how to cure it because there's just not enough people who get it. And, but, and you get it, it, it seems like, like stuffing dirt up your nose is not a good idea. But it's a, it's a little hard. But the case, there have been several cases where he has been able to intercede. What he did was, once he figured out what it was, he sent his postdocs to work on oh, that's dumping right. various drugs onto the thing to see what killed That's it. right. You're correct. It was an existing drug that was off-label. It wasn't penicillin. So, correct. Yes, you are correct. I'm wrong. No, you're, what you're remembering is another story right. where he had happens to know a doctor who in, who's in Wisconsin, uh, who have, the doctor happens to know him, who's got a 17- or 18-year-old boy who is, as they say, swirling the drain. He's about to die, and they can't figure out what's wrong with him. And, um, and they, they, they send him a, a sample of, uh, from, of his DNA, of what's inside him, to Joe, and Joe figures out what it is, and penicillin cures that. And right. the boy, two weeks later, walks out and sends Joe a video saying, thanks That's for right. saving my life. That's but, right. But, but here's the, here's, there is a larger point here that mirrors the pandemic response. And the larger point is that Joe, he's, he's this little lab all by himself and his postdocs figuring out both what ails people and how to cure it. And there's no mechanism to get that out to the broader medical system. Right. As he says, like, there's one woman in her spare time at the FDA who is trying to keep track of the academic literature and, and, and curate it, but it's insufficient. So, right. so, so it's 
like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. We have this unbelievably sophisticated medical industrial research complex that is generating new information, new knowledge, but it's not actually getting into the hands of the people who need it when they need it. And it's like an organizational problem. And it, 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 it explains, you know, why um, way, before the pandemic, way before the pandemic, middle of 2019, um, there was a study done um, by an enterprise called the Nuclear Threat Initiative, where they brought together like hundreds of experts to try to to to, to do a, a sort of a league table, a college football ranking of who was best prepared for a pandemic, and they ranked number the United States number one, and they did it because we have people like Joe DeRisi in, it, in it here that we have all this we have all this potentially sophisticated response to disease that the market. And the, and, the, the, and the government is not organizing properly. This is like life and death stuff. Right. You specifically point out um, incentives inside the medical industrial complex are such that corporations are only interested in what makes money. Academia is only interested in publishing research. And in between is where people live and die, but the system fails. Correct. Well, it better be you wrote it. <laughs> Joe DeRisi, it's very well put. <laughs> Joe DeRi- and Joe DeRisi sits there in a position to watch this happen in lots of little instances, just like Charity Dean sits there in a position to watch disease spread in the community without anybody but her able to stop it, in lots of little instances. And they're able in their minds to sort of extrapolate and think, well, you know, if this happens in a little instance, what's going to happen if there's a big instance? And they both lived through the big instance in the pandemic, and they realized that everything they saw leading up to it was a, was a premonition. It was a, a hint of how we were going to fail when we were struck by, by the big one. So let's triangulate on those three characters. Carter Meacham is the 30,000-foot— Carter Mesher, yeah. Carter, Carter Mesher is the 30,000-foot philosopher looking down at everything and figuring all sorts of stuff out. Joe DeRisi, he is doing this incredible genomics research, figuring out whether it's sharks that are going crazy or all these obscure, tiny diseases that industry has no incentive to cure because it's so small. He's He's got the red hotline that people call. And then Charity Dean is on the front lines actually dealing with this. Are those really the three main points the three main characters of the book yes you can think of him as uh, if you think of it as a james bond movie charity dean is james bond uh joe derisi's q he's (laughs) he's supplying all the kind of new weaponry uh how you fight a virus and how you track a virus and you can think of carter as m He, he has the plans uh like this is the mission and uh but but they are they're the different they're the three stools to pandemic response it's like big strategy which is what Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett dreamed up. It's it's like developing new tools, new weapons, uh, to, to stay ahead of the virus, and that's what Joe DeRisi does. And the big thing, the thing that it just has been completely lost in our response, is the on the ground, on the ground, hand to hand combat because disease is fought locally. That it is, it's thousands of county health officers making their counties safe. Uh, spotting the outbreak early, getting out in front of it, stopping it from infecting other people. So I only have you for a minute or two left. 
what does the United States need to do to not be the counterfactual bad example for the rest of the world? What do we need to do to prevent the next pandemic from being as bad as this one? We need to create a public health system. We don't have one. We pretend like we have one. It's not a system. Uh, so uh, more broadly, we need to learn how to govern ourselves. Uh, it, it's childish. But, the, but the, the, if, if specifically, you need to wire together the 3,000 public health officers in a network where they have each other's information, where the network can respond as a whole to any one instance of anything happening. So they all know that, oh, my God, this new pathogen just arrived in, you know, Dallas or in Atlanta. Everybody be on alert for this thing. And that, and that in this network, information spreads not only bubbles up instantly, like from the ground, but spreads down instantly from the top. So they know how to deal with what's happening. Um, now, there's a cultural thing that has to happen. And the cultural thing is, the country needs to understand the importance of these characters. Like their social status needs to be higher. Their social power needs to be higher. Uh, I mean, that's, if you ask me what one of the points of my book is, I mean, the point of the book is to say, you need to understand how important Charity Dean is. You missed it. Uh, you missed it just like you missed how important Michael Burry was in the big short. That you, that this, it's this character who knows how to save our lives. And um, so... You know, I think if you create the network, if you create the system, you'll also start to solve the problems of social power and social status. Uh, but but it's a, it's a system that needs to be built that we don't have. Huh. Thanks, Mike, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with author Michael Lewis about his newest book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. If you would like to check out any of our previous 400 such conversations, you can find them wherever you feed your podcast fix, iTunes, Spotify, Bloomberg.com, wherever. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack team who helps put these conversations together each and every week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Michael Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Reynolds. You've been listening to Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio.